0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John.
1: What do you think? If I were to come up to you and ask you the question, what are you thinking about? Probably most of you would say, well, I'm just not thinking about too much or oh, nothing or some kind of response like that. But actually your mind would be thinking a myriad of things, most of which you're not even aware of. In our session today, what we want to discuss is the mind and how it operates and how it functions and how it works. The mind, of course, is a very important concept that's very difficult for us to understand, and I'm not going to take a lot of time in getting into technical um, descriptions of how it works, because I'm mainly concerned with what we believe, and what we're thinking is translated to our beliefs, and our natural thinking actually determines our lifestyle. And so today, what I want us to focus in on is just a little bit of an understanding of what the mind really operates like and how important it is for us to understand on a daily basis what we're thinking and how it determines our behavior. I want to give you a little chart here on the board concerning that very thing. If we're concerned with our behavior at all, if we're concerned with what we do or say and we want to try to change that, that behavior can be very resistant to change. And it's very difficult sometimes to get at an effective, permanent behavior change. Now, this is especially true when you're talking about dysfunctional behavior, behavior that hurts yourself or hurts others in some fashion. It's sometimes very difficult to change this behavior, and what we have to do is go beneath the behavior to begin to deal with the feelings that produce that behavior, those feelings that underlie the behavior are very important for us to consider, and this we've done in previous sessions. We've considered how it is that we feel, where the feelings come from, how they impact our lives, not only physically, but also personally and relationally. And we've noted particularly how our feelings determine our behavior. But as we also learned, our feelings are determined by what we think. Not just what happens to us, not just our circumstances in life, but what we actually believe or think about the things that are happening to us or our circumstances around us. And so really our feelings are determined ultimately by our thoughts. The scriptures tell us this very clearly when it says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, the way we think determines ultimately how we feel, and finally, what we do or what we say. Our feelings, then, are kind of the middle ground between our behavior and our thinking. Now, today I want us in our session to talk about particularly our thoughts, because if we're going to have any substantial change in either how we're feeling or in how we're behaving, we're going to have to do what the Bible calls repentance. Let me describe repentance for you so you understand how it connects with what we're studying about the mind today. Repentance is not just simply that we feel sorry for things that we've done that are wrong. There is an emotional component, you understand, to repentance, but that's not all there is to repentance, and as a matter of fact, it's a very small part of repentance as far as the scriptures are concerned. It comes from a compound Greek word, metanoia, which means literally to change your thinking when we truly repent we actually change 100 degrees or 180 degrees rather from thinking one way to thinking a completely different way and we're going to try to illustrate that in our session today our thinking then is critical to how we feel and how we act and if we're going to change our feelings and our behavior then it's obvious that we're going to have to change the way we think Now the Bible says a lot about this And let me just give you a few examples First of all from the life of John the Baptist You remember John He he came preaching in the wilderness And his message to Israel was Repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand Now the reason he came preaching to Israel A message of repentance Is just simply because They needed to change their thinking about God About themselves And particularly about what it was going to take For them to please God They needed to change their thinking out of a legal mentality, that is, living their lives by a set of rules and regulations, to changing their thinking to a grace mentality, that is, receiving by grace through faith what God was about to do for them in the person and work of the Messiah. And so John came preaching repentance. Likewise, Jesus, when he came on the scene, called the nation to the same thing. Change your thinking. Their thinking had become distorted and to such an extent that they, as a nation, became dysfunctional. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see here this morning out of the scriptures, the thinking was so dysfunctional, the way that the cultural thought of the day was so dysfunctional that the nation actually rejected their own Messiah. The nation actually came to the position where they cried, crucify him, their own Messiah. That's how dysfunctional the nation really was. Now, in order to change that, Jesus had to deal with their thinking. He had to deal with their heart, if you will. And let me give you some definition here this morning, just to try to come to grips with an understanding of our mind, we need to understand that there are two components of the mind. The first one that we're naturally aware of is the conscious component. You can visualize this as an iceberg floating in, the, in a sea and the tip of that iceberg, that which is above the water, that which can be seen, is just a very small part of the total mass of that iceberg and this we'll refer to as the conscious mind. It's conscious because we're aware of it, we think of it. This encompasses all of our thoughts, our perceptions, our reasonings, everything that we are typically aware of is referred to as the conscious mind, or I'm just going to refer to it as the mind. But there's another component to our mind that is equally as important that we've, we've got to consider, and that's what's beneath the surface of our awareness, and that's referred to as the sub because it's beneath the surface, the subconscious mind. Now the Bible has a different term for this subconscious mind. The subconscious mind you understand is not in the scriptures. If you try to look it up in the Bible in in your concordance you're not going to find the subconscious mind. And so to give you the biblical term for the subconscious mind, what psychologists would refer to as a subconscious mind, We're just going to use the term heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it hardly ever mentions, or it never, as a matter of fact, mentions this organ in the center of the chest that pumps blood. That's not what the Bible means by the heart. It's talking about the deepest part of our awareness, of our thought processes, or what psychologists would call the subconscious mind. I'm going to be illustrating out of the scriptures here in a moment the difference between the mind and heart, but in Philippians chapter 4, if you recall from our previous studies, the promise was that when we let our requests be made known unto God concerning the things we worry about, God promises to guard with his peace, the peace that passes all understanding, our heart and mind. He's not only guarding that conscious awareness, but he's also guarding that subconscious awareness with his peace. So the Bible makes a distinction between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind by using the terms heart and mind, respectively. The important concept about this is to realize that the subconscious mind contains all of the things, experiences that we've experienced in the past all the previous things we've learned, and stores it in what's called our memory. If you can think of it as a as a computer with data banks of, of storage, our subconscious mind actually stores everything we've ever experienced down deep inside in what we refer to as memory or the memory banks. Now, most of us complain about not having a very good memory. If you're like me, you... Uh, Have a terrible time remembering names and sometimes you can remember faces but you can't put a name with it or you if you were like i was in school a straight c student you have terrible time remembering uh information that you're supposed to be um uh, putting down on a test and that sort of thing but really the problem we have is not that we can't remember things the problem is that we can't really forget things because you see everything has been actually stored in your subconscious mind everything has been uh, processed and coded and placed down within that mind of ours called that section of our mind called the heart this means not only the good things that have happened to you have been stored down inside but also the bad things and particularly the ugly things they've been stored down deep in our subconscious mind so that in times when we don't really want to remember them, they come back. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of or experienced yourself what is referred to as flashbacks from traumatic events that have been stored in your mind before. I've had serious experience with that over the last 20-some years. Flashbacks from experience, wartime experiences in Vietnam. And they can be triggered by the least little thing and they invariably come at times when you least expect it. You see, all of that memory is still stored in my subconscious mind or in my heart, there are memories of people stored deep within in that subconscious mind of mine, and they have a tendency to break forth into this conscious mind when I'm least suspecting it. I remember not long ago, I was sitting down to watch a movie with my wife and daughter a little movie about a a little Amerasian girl that came here to the United States and and wound up winning a a spelling, the national spelling bee. Uh, It was called the, The Girl Who Spelled Freedom. And we were sitting down, just sitting down at home, just relaxing, getting ready to watch this movie. And they had a scene at the beginning of the movie where it was night and a village was on fire and this woman and her children were running down the river bank and the helicopters were going. You could hear the blades popping on the helicopters. You could hear the gunfire in the background and the explosions, and I just lost it altogether. Out of my subconscious mind came a memory that I had not remembered for 15 or 20 years, a memory of watching a family running away from a burning village out towards our medevac helicopter and being killed by machine gun fire and mortar fire. This flashback came rushing into my conscious awareness and took over. It took over and controlled my entire experience. I could no longer sit there and watch. I got up and left. Now these kinds of flashbacks are stored, or this kind of information is stored in the subconscious mind, and a flashback is just when it is triggered by some event or some situation in which The memory comes rushing out, and you actually wind up reliving the experience again. Because, you see, your mind takes in all information through your perceptual processes, the eyes, the ears, and so on, all your five senses. It takes in all the information around you. It codes it in certain ways and then stores it forever. As a matter of fact, one author I was reading suggested that the books that are opened at the great white throne judgment, remember God Judges all people out of the books. He suggested that the books that were opened were actually our subconscious minds that are opened up and God has stored within our subconscious mind every experience, every thought, everything we've ever taken in is stored there. So really, we don't need a better memory. Actually, we need a better forgettery to get rid of some of the things that are stored down inside. Now, I just mentioned this to you so that you can begin to get an idea of how the mind works, of how it operates. But let's take it a step further here and talk not only about the subconscious mind in which all memories are stored and coded for us, but let's also talk about the function of the conscious mind in which is continually processing information, continually making statements about the things that are going on around us every single day our conscious mind is always at work while we're awake evaluating, judging, uh, in some way processing information that we're taking in. And I want to give you a, a little term here that psychologists use that describe this process that's very, very important for us to understand if we're actually going to change our thoughts. It's a, it's a term called just simply self-talk. Self-talk. Talking to ourselves. Now, most of us hate to try to admit, I guess, that we're we're talking to ourselves all the time, but really we are. Uh, I, I suppose it's not so bad to talk to yourself, it's when you answer yourself that you get in trouble. But that that being the case, even at that, we are not only talking to ourselves, but also carrying on a conversation with ourselves, if not outlined, outside Inside, Inwardly, we're constantly carrying on a conversation with ourselves about the things that are going on around us. This is called self-talk. Now, brain researchers have suggested that 82%, now that's most of your brain activity, 82% of your brain activity is taken up with self-talk. This means you're talking to yourself most of the day about what's going on around you. Now, most of us are not aware of this self-talk, but it's a very useful thing for you to begin to try to understand what it is you're saying to yourself in that self-talk, because from my experience in working with folks, about 90% of that self-talk is gonna be negative. About 90% of what you're saying to yourself are negative statements about yourself, about others, about your situation, about your circumstances. I think mothers call that whining. Now, we adults, we're not supposed to be whining, you understand, like that, but when we get into the negative self-talk, what our minds get on a track, and they're, and they're almost programmed constantly to be whining and to be complaining and to be thinking of what can go wrong or what has gone wrong or what could go wrong, and we get into this negative self-talk. Now, if what's going on in your mind in that negative self-talk is all the things that could go wrong how do you suppose you're going to feel that's right you're going to feel bad you're going to feel wrong and if you're feeling bad how do you suppose you're going to act you're going to act bad you're going to say things that are wrong you see where the problem starts is down here in our mind and this can be either from the subconscious mind with stored information uh, sneaking out and getting into our conscious mind or just the conscious mind itself actually processing negative self-talk can actually has a, has a detrimental effect on our behavior. Now, God is very much concerned about that. The Lord is is really concerned and he's given us a lot of information in the scripture about repentance, about changing our thinking. And I want to share a scripture out of Ephesians chapter 4 with you just to give you an illustration now of what God actually says concerning our mind and the importance of our mind. I want you to notice this. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to break into the context here. By the way, while I'm doing that, let me just give you a little Bible reading lesson here, right in the middle of this. It's very important when you read the scriptures that you actually do not take these scriptures out of context. It's so easy to take a scripture, any scripture, out of context. And when you read the Bible, you need to make sure you understand what the context is. So here I am, about ready to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and the verses that follow. But I want you to know the context. First of all, it's in one of Paul's letters to the church at Ephesus. He is writing here to Christian people. He is writing to believers like you. And he is saying, in essence, in this particular section of his letter, This is the practical application of the gospel. In other words, the last part of Paul's letters is always a practical application. To really do this justice, we need to read the first four chapters. But obviously, to save time, I'm not going to go back and read the first four chapters in which he tells you some marvelous things to put your mind on the right track. He tells you that you are blessed with all spiritual blessings as a child of God. He tells you that you are forgiven of all sins and trespasses, that you are holy and without blame. He tells you that you have been saved by grace through faith, apart from any works whatsoever. He tells you all the wonderful things that God has done for you, and he builds that whole thing up in the first three chapters, and then he begins to make practical application to it. So we're now in the practical section of the letter, and we're making practical application concerning the gospel that he shared with us. But here, notice where he goes. First of all, to make this practical application. In verse 17, He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now, let me kind of retranslate that for you a little bit, just so that you'll get an idea of what we're talking about in connection with what we've got on the board. When the Bible talks about your walk, this is what Paul says. He says, I testify that I don't want you to walk like other Gentiles. He's talking about your behavior. He's saying, I don't want you to be dysfunctional anymore. I don't want you to be crazy anymore. I don't want you to, to walk in a, in a dysfunctional lifestyle any longer. But notice what, he's, what he attributes that dysfunctional behavior to. In the vanity of their mind. You see, it's that vanity of the mind that produces the dysfunctional behavior. Now, it's important that you understand that the vanity of their mind is King James English for being an airhead. That's what the vanity of the mind really means. It means an emptiness in their reasoning and in their ability to think and their beliefs. He says, I don't want you to walk that way. Now, let's go on to describe in the next few verses what that is like. In verse 18, he says, having the understanding darkened. Part of being an airhead is that you don't understand what's going on. You're confused. Everything is a mystery to you. You have no earthly idea of what you're about, who you are, what God is about, or what other people are about. You're always surprised and it's a mystery to you because your understanding is darkened or you're simply confused. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now notice this, being alienated from the life of God means you're not experiencing the fullness of God's life, divine life, through the ignorance, not being aware of what God has done for us and who he's made us to be that is in us through the blindness of the heart. There's a blindness there that cannot see the spiritual reality of the good news of what God has made us to be and who he's made us to be and what he's doing with us. You see, what, what I'm describing here is a spiritual heart problem. We've got a very serious problem that we're leading up to, we're going to look at here today. Who being past feeling. Now if all this is going on in the mind now, all of this airheadedness is in the mind, then it's going to have an impact on our feelings. And notice how he describes that in verse 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that's just fancy King James' way of saying this, that when your thinking is messed up, you're going to set as your number one goal in life to feel good. I can't tell you how sick people are when their number one goal in life is to feel good. As soon as your number one goal in life is to feel good, you're sick, real sick. Now, we're going to elaborate on this a little later in another session, but for right now it's real important to understand that when that thinking is messed up, when that thinking is corrupt, when that thinking is in the vanity that he talks about, then our goal in life becomes just to feel good for the moment. And because of that goal, we can do and say things that will lead to more problems later. Let me give you a couple examples of this, just to bring it home here when our thinking gets confused we don't understand who we are we don't understand that we are secure and significant in Christ's love we don't understand that we're one with him we don't understand the goodness of the gospel concerning who we are we get down on ourselves we become critical of others we hurt so bad inside that we look for any kind of anesthetic to take the pain away any kind of anesthetic we can can get our hands on It may come in the form of chemicals, like alcohol, drugs, or it may come in the form of activities, like work, getting a a lot of work done, doing a good job, work performance, or sexual activities to relieve stress and pain. It may come in the form of a lot of different anesthetics that we get ourselves involved in because our number one goal is to make ourselves feel good. But when this happens, when we start using anesthetics to make ourselves feel good, we become addicted to those anesthetics that make us feel good. The cycle of addiction begins when we, first of all, set as a goal to feel good and builds as we don't really care what it's going to take to make us feel good. And so after a while, we get to thinking that I've got to have more of whatever makes me feel good, and the more we get of it, the less it makes us feel good. And so we get in a real addictive kind of cycle, a vicious process that will lead us to serious problems. Where does all this come from? It originates again with that vanity of the mind that he's telling us about here that leads to the number one goal in our life of of doing whatever it takes to make us feel good. But note the contrast here now in verse 20. He says, but you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He says you've got a better way to think now. You've not learned Christ in, in this fashion. You've got something else that's better for you to believe in now, something else that's better for you to think about. Now, In the later sessions, the next three or four sessions, we're going to begin to focus in on what it is that we've got better to believe about. Right now I'm just mentioning the fact to you so that you know that we've got something better to believe in, because we've heard Christ and we've been taught by him as the truth is in him. And then he goes on to tell us that we put off concerning the former conversation, the former lifestyle, that is, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts or feelings and be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And what he's talking about here is just the fact that God intends to renew our thinking, to change our mind. It's God's process and his program to actually change us from the inside out by renewing our mind. This can only be done by the Spirit of God. No human being can change your thinking. Only the Spirit of God can renew your mind. That's why he says here, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, he is talking about the fact that God actually supernaturally changes how you're thinking, which will impact the way you feel and ultimately the way you behave. Now, in order to illustrate that, I want us to get down to uh, Matthew chapter 15, and I want want you to follow along with me in one of those situations where Jesus was in a great controversy uh, with the religious rulers of his day concerning this very issue. I could summarize everything we've been talking about so far by telling you that the real root issue that all of us have to come to grips with every single day is what we are thinking about, is what we're believing. Unless we can get down to that core issue, we can make some temporary changes in our behavior. And we can make some temporary changes in our feelings by other means. But if we're going to have any permanent lasting change that's healthy, we're going to have to get down to the change in our thinking. And this is what I want to illustrate now out of Matthew chapter 15. Jesus identifies this very thing as the root issue of our problems. In order to do so, we're going to have to understand a little bit about the context here. Jesus is in another one of those terrible controversies with the religious rulers of his day. Do you all realize how radical Jesus was? I mean, he is the most radical person you'll ever see in your life because he walked directly opposite and contrary to the natural religious teachings of his day, constantly. He met none of their standards whatsoever, and yet he was, as a son of God, obviously profound and powerful. Well, here he's in another one of the many controversies that he had. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 15, he says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? Now let's just stop right there before we get to the illustration of what he's talking about and try to put ourselves now in this particular position. Let's put ourselves not in the position of Jesus right now. I'm going to call you to do something that's real difficult. It'll be difficult for you who are here in the studio, but it'll be especially difficult for you folks at home as well, living at home, watching this in the living room. It's going to be hard for you to put yourself in the position of the Pharisee, but I want you to put yourself there. Now, just to give you a little help here on what it means to be a Pharisee, I want to suggest to you that you're all Pharisees. We're all born that way. In fact, when we're born... We kind of look like a Pharisee. We're all wrapped up in a little robe, all bald-headed. We kind of look like Pharisees then, don't we? Well, we are by nature Pharisees, naturally. Now, you may never have thought of yourself as being a Pharisee, so let me give you a little help here. If you want to, you can just turn over a few pages in your Bible to Matthew 23, where the strongest language that Jesus ever used that was recorded for us by the Gospels was in, in his rebuke against the Pharisees. And I want you to see some characteristics of this Pharisees. Now, particularly, I want you to see how they're thinking here, and I want you to try to identify with them. Listen, if you can't identify yourself as being a Pharisee, then you're going to miss the whole point of what Jesus is going to tell us here, because we've all got to come to grips with this one way or another. He says in verse... Uh, Well, let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. This is the first characteristic of the Pharisee now. For they say and do not. Have you ever found yourself saying and not doing Do you you realize how easy it is to talk the talk but not walk the walk? Have you ever had the best intentions that you were going to follow through on something and you promised that you would do it and not been able to do it? You see, the mark of a Pharisee is they say and do not. Now, frequently, we find ourselves judging other people along this line, thinking what ought to be done to certain people. And this is kind of... This is Pharisee talk, if you want to follow me on this. I don't understand how anybody could do something like that. I just can't imagine how they would ever say something like that or why they would ever do something like that. But we ourselves, you see, might be found to be doing the very thing a little later. We can say and do not. But that's just the first characteristic of a Pharisee. Let's move to the second one here, the next verse. He says, Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now Let me try to give you an, an illustration of what a grievous burden, heavy to be born, is. Let me, let me just write the word up here on the board for you. Expectations. What do you expect? What do you expect others to do? How do you expect them to act? What do you expect them to say? How do you expect them to respond to you? Expectations. Your expectations on other people are the heavy burdens grievous to be born that you lay on other people's shoulders. Now, if you'll evaluate those expectations closely, you'll, you'll find that they line up very clearly with what we expect out of God, for the most part. Now, many of you know that it's hard for people to be God? It's really tough. I mean, it's a hard thing for people to actually be God to other people, and yet we continually, consistently, without even thinking about it, expect others to act like God. These are the heavy burdens, grievous to be born, when I expect my wife Sandy to understand me, or I expect other people to support me. I expect others to encourage me. I expect some to help me. These are heavy burdens, grievous to be born, that I'm laying on men's shoulders. But I myself, you see, while I'm, while I'm expecting those folks to do that, while I'm actually laying these expectations out, I'm not concerned about doing for them. I'm concerned about them doing for me. So the second characteristic of the Pharisee is that we expect others to do things, but we ourselves are not going to do anything for them. And then the final characteristic is in verse 5, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. This one is perhaps the most serious characteristic of a Pharisee that all of us have to fight with because what he's talking about is our approval addiction here. He is talking about the fact that we seek the approval of others constantly. We constantly want, on a daily basis, others to affirm us and tell us we're all right. And so everything we do and everything we say is done and said with the idea in mind that somebody going to appreciate that. Have you ever tried to do a, the best job you can? And I mean you just worked yourself to the bone to do the best job you could, and whatever it is, and then no one appreciated it? No one even noticed it? I mean, that is frustrating, isn't it? Why? Because all we do, we do to be seen of men. That's why. So to be honest with ourselves now and go back to Matthew chapter 15, we're going to have to say we're kind of in the same boat these Pharisees are here that Jesus was arguing with. And I'm not too sure that had I been living in Jesus' day, I'm not too sure if I was a Jew in Jesus' day that I just might find myself in the Pharisee camp here. Because you see, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. When I really get honest with myself, I was trained up and raised up and actually went to a Pharisee school, to tell you the truth. (laughs) And, And I became a Pharisee because I had a legal mentality. Praise God, he set me free from part of that. I'm still working on the rest of it. But I put myself in the Pharisee's situation and I would find myself criticizing Jesus for what his disciples were doing. In this case, it's kind of a funny thing to us, and let me explain it culturally to you. They were criticizing Jesus because he failed to teach his disciples to actually wash their hands before they ate. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal to us. I mean, for hygiene purposes, it's probably good, especially if you've been out working cows, to wash your hands before you eat. But spiritually, there was another thing involved in this. You see, spiritually... What, Jesus was, what these Pharisees were concerned with was Jesus was not following the rituals of the day. He was not following the purification rites that was prescribed by tradition of the elders. His disciples would not actually play a religious game that the rest of the folks were playing. playing. And so these Pharisees came to criticize Jesus about this. Now they'd had their tail feathers singed enough by Jesus that they didn't want to go right after him. So they went after his flaky disciples instead. And they said, if you're such a good teacher, how come your flaky disciples aren't playing our religious game? Now notice what Jesus responded to them with. In verse 3 of chapter 15, But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition? Now this is a radical thing, isn't it? Here they were asking him, Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders and he flopped it right back around on him, like he usually does with a question he said why do you transgress God's command by your tradition now this is the tough part that we're going to have to hang on to so take another notch in that spiritual seatbelt of yours and hang on now what I've been impressed with is 90% of our religious traditions are transgressing the commandments of God. See, I'm totally convinced that American Christianity today is in the same boat that, it, that Judaism was in Jesus' day when they rejected their Savior. Ninety percent of our traditions today, our religious traditions, transgress the commandments of God. I'm, just, I'm not going to spend the whole time on this because I could go on and on and on and get real negative. I'd get myself into this negative self-talk here before long I'd depress myself something fierce and then I'd act weird in some way. So I'm I'm going to try not to do that here and try not to go on, but I want to give you one example of what I'm talking about here. One example of religious tradition transgressing the tradition or the commandments of God. The scripture is very clear that we are to receive one another, especially him that is weak in the faith. The scripture is very clear that we are to receive others like God has received them. And yet I was associate pastor of a church one time and instructed by the board of deacons that should a black man come for membership in that church, that I was not to receive them. Because you see this church that I was associate pastor of for a short time, was religious and had the traditions of men that said black and white folks can't worship God together so that black folks couldn't be a member of a white church. They had to go to a black church to be a member of. Now that's just one illustration of many types of traditions, religious traditions that actually violate the scriptures. The particular one Jesus was dealing with here had to do with the fourth commandment, to honor your father and mother. And look at this in verse 4. He says, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, here's the tradition, Whoso shall be, say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition let me explain what he's really talking about here the Jews know knew at that day and they still know today what it means to honor your father and mother It doesn't mean you just give them some kind of respect while you're living with them and you just give them lip service as you pretend to like to hear their advice it means that you care for them in their old age just as they cared for you when you were an infant when you were small just as they raised you up in their home You now use your resources to care for them. These Jews, however, not wanting to do that, found a weasel clause, found a way to get around it. They said, I know what I'll do. I'll give all my money to the church. Actually, it was to the temple in that day. I'll give all my money to the temple, and then... When my folks need money, I can say, I'm sorry, it's a gift. I don't have any money left at all. I've given all my money to God. I'm sorry, I don't have any money to take care of you, so I won't be held responsible. What they didn't say is anytime they needed to buy something new, they could go down to the temple and get the money because, you see, they control the money of the temple. So what they were doing is actually laundering their money that they would take care of their parents with. Now, Jesus pointed this out to them to illustrate a deeper concept here. Notice this in verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, this is the problem we deal with. All of us deal with this to one extent or another. We can sing praises to God We can sing hymns of worship in which we declare that we trust God. And with our mouth, we can say we're a Christian. And with our lips, we can declare that we love God. But deep down inside, our hearts are miles away from Him. This is the problem that all of us face. This is the problem that all of us have. Jesus went on to illustrate it by saying, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. One thing that we really need to be careful of is listening to teachings of men that do not correspond with the Word of God. Did you know that about 90% of what goes on in the church is not in the Bible? It has become a tradition. You can't find it in the Bible anywhere. As a matter of fact, if you do anything more than three times, it becomes a tradition, So 90% of what we do really is just based on tradition. And it's not wrong necessarily that we do it, but if we do it thinking that God demands it of us, then we're going to get into all kinds of trouble. But Jesus goes on and he said, he called the multitude unto him and he said, hear and understand. Here's a radical statement, so hang on. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth this defiles a man. Now that was a radical statement for Jesus to make in his day. Let me explain the radical nature. When I teach this in a Christ-centered recovery program, like I've done at Faith Farm or at Dunklin, when I teach this very thing, it's always a radical statement for me to tell men who are, who are struggling against alcoholism and drug addiction that it's not the alcohol or the drugs that cause them to be defiled. And usually they, they look at me with this blank look, kind of stare at me like an Okeechobee cow looking at a new gate and say, what are you talking about? And i say, it's, it's not the drugs or alcohol that defile you. It's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. That's not the real problem. Well, they say, sure it is. If, if I just quit drinking then I don't have any problems at all. No, that's not true. And anybody that's just quit drinking knows that. If I just quit doing drugs, I won't have any... No, that's not true. You still have the problem because, you see, the drinking and the drugging were just the symptom of the problem. That's true with any kind of addiction. This is what Jesus is getting to. He's getting to, literally, the heart of the problem when his disciples came to him and they said, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended? They were reacting to the real radical nature of this statement because let's put ourselves now in Jesus' position. The Jews are real picky about what they ate. I mean, they couldn't have unclean food like crab legs, lobster, bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwiches. Those were no-nos to the Jews. That's unclean food. And what Jesus was saying is it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. He was thought to be going against the very word of God, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law in which these unclean animals were forbidden by God to be eaten. I mean, this was a radical statement for him to make, but he was shaking people up with this statement because his disciples came and all worried. Don't you know the Pharisees are offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said unto them, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Let me give you one word of caution here. In case you've already begun to think in your minds, all of the, all of the uh, Pharisees that you know, that you hang out with, and all the traditions that they're all wrapped up in, in case you start thinking about all that in your mind, and you then think it's probably your duty now before God to go tell them they're a Pharisee, and it's your duty to straighten out their religious traditions, I want you to read what Jesus said again, verse 14, let them alone. Do not try to rehabilitate a Pharisee. It will not work. You've got enough problems with your own Pharisaic tendencies. You don't need to go straighten out the Pharisees of the world. You don't need to revitalize all the Pharisees here and, and cause them to come back, leave them alone. Because why? Why? what we've got to get to is what Jesus goes on. Because then Peter, when he, he understood that he couldn't just go blast the Pharisees anymore, he finally came to Jesus, got real with Jesus, and said, declare unto us this parable. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Read on with me in verse 16. Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? Do not you yet understand that whatsoever enters into the, at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile a the man. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that what defiles us is what comes forth, these thoughts that come forth out of that subconscious mind or heart. They defile a man. He goes on to explain, verse 19, for out of the heart, out of the subconscious mind, proceeds, the very first thing he mentions, is evil thoughts. Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. And then he goes on to describe the results of those evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Now I want to put on the board here, as we close out our session, the evil thought, that is in our heart. I want to write down the evil thought. This may come as a uh, a surprise to you, but this is a format for evil thoughts. I'm just going to put it somewhere on this board here, right here. I will be worthy. I will be worthy if... I left off the if there. But I want you to get this in your mind now. Listen to me carefully. I will be worthy if is the evil thought that's in our minds. It's not evil because it in itself looks evil or sounds evil even. It's evil because according to the gospel of the word of God, as illustrated from Genesis to Revelation, God's purpose in telling us this is that we are by His grace made to be worthy. That is secure and significant because of what He's done for us in Christ, we could not do for ourselves. He has made us worthy. And when we get in our minds, I will be worthy if, this is what it sounds like spiritually in the heavenlies. It sounds like this. God, you're a liar. God, your son Jesus is a wimp who died for nothing. God, your spirit doesn't do a thing for me because I will be worthy if I can have more money if I can have better relationships, if I can have a nicer house, if I can get people to behave themselves, if I can grow up, if I can look better, if I can be better. You just fill in the blank with anything you want to. That statement, I will be worthy if, is a lie that contradicts the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the evil thoughts straight from the pits of hell that destroy us and defile us from the inside out. In order to change, we're gonna have to learn to recognize how much of our self-talk is wrapped up with this lie, I will be worthy if. We're going to have to recognize how much of our self-talk is actually blaspheming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the good news is that when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior, You become worthy because he's worthy. He is in you, you are in him, he has made you worthy. That means personally you are secure in God's love. Personally you're significant in God's plan. Personally you are worthy, but that little false assumption, that lie in our minds that says, I will be worthy if, defiles us. And when that little lie in our minds defiles us from the inside, our feelings change. And ultimately, our behavior change changes. May the Lord grant us the grace to recognize the lie of I will be worthy if.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.